we began looking at this blessed salvation that God has given to us. Uh, We started that last week as we looked at the abundant mercy of God, and we hopefully uh, instill within us a concept as we go through life, we can say his mercy endures forever. That we have a foreverness to our mercy, and the mercy that that was uh, illustrated here by our rebirth, being begotten again, uh, listed there in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, because, to a living hope. So we have a rebirth, we have a living hope, all because of and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That, that just as he had new life in him, we are granted new life uh, through him. And this is really just the introduction to what Peter wants to develop for the next few verses. As I shared last week, we're really breaking up one sentence that lasts for many, many verses, all the way through verse 12, is really in Greek one sentence. And so we're going to have a lot of phrases to really talk about this new birth and the living hope that we have. And that is connected to and glorifying the abundant mercy of God the Father and of Jesus Christ. And so all of this is really an extension of his mercy towards us and the rebirth we received through the resurrection. This morning we begin to uh, press the living hope. Remember hope from last week, as I've said many times, not just last week but many, many weeks, is not hopefulness as though wishful thinking, but it is confident expectation that we confidently expect to have a living future. That that living future is based not upon how well I live, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that as he lives, so I will live. And so we're going to be developing, and Peter here is going to develop extensively the eternality of that hope of that future, and he's going to be developing it, and he's also going to be developing the sureness of it, the confidence that we have in it, and we're going to see this in multiple different ways, and as I said, this is a great warm-up for us, and really a build-up. If I was going to pick a series of sermons to preach, to prepare you to be thankful for Thanksgiving, this would probably be one of the top ones. We are going to go through and rehearse together and study and evaluate the precious gift of God in its extent of its eternality. That is, how long will it last? How sure is it that we have this future? And while the world is all doing this today, rubbing their hands and wondering about the future of our country, we have an opportunity to glimpse and to delve into our future without rubbing of hands at all, with no question mark. We don't have to have any survey or polling work done. Uh, It has all been accomplished, and we can have a, a strong confidence And we should live like that. We should evidence that in how we live in this world, how we serve God, how we worship, how we engage with others, is that we have a full confidence that we know who we are in Christ, we know what we possess, and we know where we're going. And with that in place, 
No one can take the joy and peace from us. Not the circumstances around us, uh, not the uh, hardships that we might encounter, might, not even opposition that is focused upon us. Let men call us evil uh, and God call us good all the day long. I'd prefer that circumstance than the alternative, that men call us good and God call us evil. Wouldn't you? And so when, when men do that, and because when we do good and they, they, they do evil, uh, God says you are in a blessed condition. And we're going to look at that blessedness. In fact, that's one of the passages we're going to, to uh, uh, engage with as we go through this concept this morning in verse 4 of 1 Peter 3, which is you are... By God's mercy, according to his abundant mercy, has been begotten again to an inheritance. You've been begotten to a living hope, we saw last week. You've also been born again to an inheritance. And this is what we want to study this morning, is the inheritance that awaits you. Now, we all understand the concept behind an inheritance. An inheritance is something that is kept for us by someone else until a certain circumstance exists. Normally, we think of an inheritance as something that is given to us at the death of the one who is the current possessor of it. And thus, when I die, my son inherits my estate. But that is just the condition of a will. But it does not mean that that is the only time you could gain an inheritance. I could simply write a will or make a declaration that as soon as I turn 60, my son inherits everything I own. And so I set the conditions of the inheritance. Uh, it could be my death. It could be my retirement. It could be my senility. It could be, which I really hope that doesn't happen. Um, but uh, I don't want to outlive my brain. I, I, I know a lot of people go to medical science. That's really all they do is help you outlive your brain, and I don't want to do that. Uh, I would rather just let this body go and keep my mind than the alternative. And uh, so we, we have these conditions of inheritance. And we saw a picture of that when Jesus tells the, the account of the story of the uh, young man who wanted his inheritance early. And then he goes off and squanders it with, with partying with friends. And then he ends up impoverished and feeding swine. And he realized, comes to his senses, the Bible says. And then he says, hey, even servants of my father's house live better than I'm living now. I'm going to go back to my dad's home. And, of course, he gets a very good reception from his father, gets put back into a position. But he is an inherited less Son, because while dad has, kills the fatted calf and the brother complains a little bit, the fact is everything the father owned is now belongs to that son because the son who took his inheritance and squandered it has nothing more to expect from his father. And so we know that inheritances can be received prior to the death of the one who is holding that inheritance or possessing it. In our situation, we have it kind of reversed. We're looking forward to our inheritance not when someone else dies, but when we die. We're looking forward to our inheritance when we can leave this tent and receive our eternal home. And, that, and it is built upon the death not of, the, of our father, but of our brother in, in, in 
and we'll talk about that term here shortly, of Jesus Christ. That is built upon his death, burial, and resurrection. And that the resurrection from the dead has produced our inheritance. And so that is the, we, and so I want you to think differently about inheritance. Say, well, when someone dies, I get their stuff. Um, that's just our modern concept of inheritance. It really wasn't an ancient concept of inheritance. The ancient concept of inheritance, you get it at some point. And that's why we see perhaps even, even in the reign of the kings of Israel, many times they would turn over their kingdom before they died to their son. And so they would identify that, and so there would be an overlap where you'd have two kings, one that is reigning and one that is, we would call it retired, but he has, he has surrendered that authority, and, and so there's an overlapping, sometimes of significant amount of time. And so the idea of inheritance is not, uh, is, is not just an, an end-of-life event, and so we come now to our inheritance, to the inheritance that God has uh, rebirthed us to receive. We have been begotten again to an inheritance. Uh, please notice that. Uh, when we see this, uh, we'll back up into verse 3, because remember, it's all one sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And we're going to develop the you a little bit more uh, next week. But here we are in the inheritance. You are begotten again to a living hope, to a, a, a confident expectation of being participating in the resurrection to life. And now you're also being reborn, born again, begotten again to an inheritance. And these should be naturally understood together to the degree that it probably should have been one message, but I didn't want to preach two hours last week. I do this week, though. I got extra an hour of sleep, so I'm ready. No, I won't preach that long. So we have an inheritance. This inheritance is linked to being begotten again because an inheritance we usually understand is from a, a parent to a child. And since God is our Father, we now have an inheritance. This is developed in multiple passages of God's Word, which we want to look at. And I want to develop the concept before we get into the description of it here by Peter in verse 4. So let's do a little overview of our inheritance, shall we? Uh, just to get a, a feel for it. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 5 and to get... Uh, from Jesus's concept of who inherits what in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon uh, on the Mount, and many of you may have that memorized. If you've been in Word of Life Club for a while, you should have this section of Scripture memorized, so it should be very familiar to you. And, uh, and you know, come right out. Uh, let's pick up in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We ended up in verse 10, where we began in verse 3, that we are the possessors of the kingdom of heaven. In the midst of this, there is the world, the word inherit, but it's referring to the earth, and I believe that's uh, intentional, that we have an inheritance here as well, uh, that we can claim. Blessed are the meek. 
And so we find this blessed condition, but over and over again, we see that this is something that we have a confident hope up, that we are in a blessed condition because we have this waiting for us, that the kingdom of heaven is ours, that it is for us. And we have some qualifying terms here that describe really the whole plan of salvation laid out for us, uh, being poor in spirit, that is humbling ourselves, and all the way through the process of receiving Christ as our Savior, of, of serving Him faithfully, and standing fast in Him. All of those are described here in the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in very eloquent language. But over and over again, it is now you have a possession. The possession that you have is the kingdom of heaven. It is your ultimate inheritance. Now let's look at uh, another passage here. We want to look at Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes extensively about the inheritance and describing it beginning in verse 11, and we'll be reading through, uh, through verse, oh, well, maybe to the end of the chapter, at least through 18, 19. God's word says, in him, we also, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And we'll, I can keep reading. Uh, Paul has extensively laid out the inheritance that God predestined. And again, predestination is not choosing who gets what. It's predestining what someone gets, who meets the qualifications. The qualifications are listed here by Paul, that you have placed your faith. I have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, your love for the saints. You're following after God, that it is our faith that now brings to us the gift of God, which is our, a new destiny. A destiny that God has decided in eternity past would be for all those who by faith accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. It is now your destiny because you have received Jesus Christ, but the Father declared in eternity past that whoever received Jesus Christ as their Savior by faith and love of the saints would receive this destiny. What is that destiny? He describes it again in those same terms as an inheritance. Do you see also similarly here in Ephesians chapter 1 the link to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that that is what has, has, has gained that for you. That is through his resurrection that we have this hope, this confident expectation of receiving an inheritance. Something that we are now 
possessors of, even though we are legal possessors of, even though we are not physical possessors of it. And so because uh, a testator has a will and has, and has said legally this person is going to be the owner of this property upon this condition, legally that stands. They are the legal heir. And that's going to be a very important phrase when we get to our next passage. That they are the legal heir. We are the heirs. We have that legal right now to that, not because we earned it or gained it, but because we received it by the power of the resurrection. And so we have all the identical themes. They are expanded here in, for, in Ephesians 1, but the same themes as 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that is encapsulating something very concisely that, Peter, that Paul here develops in Ephesians 1. And so we find that we have God willing that those who trust in Christ should receive glory. And I want you to notice that reference to the glory. It is listed repeatedly here in Ephesians 1. Then in verse 12, it says, to the praise of his glory. It goes on to talk about the praise of his glory in verse 14, which is also referencing like, the guarantee of our inheritance. Uh, we see the further in verse 17 that God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And so again, that, that attachment of what we are receiving to glory and then to his power. The power of the resurrection and that this is what God has kept for those who are his children. Now, we have referenced all of this. What we have not talked about is the condition of it. And the condition of it is our adoption. So remember, Peter says you've been born, begotten again to a living hope. You've been begotten again. You are born again. Born of the Spirit, not of the flesh, so that God is your Father. The way Ephesians, Paul connects that, is actually earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says that you have been determined to be adopted as sons, and that's in verse uh, 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. And so the adoption happens, making us sons of God, and the way Peter describes it is begotten again. So we are in that role of sons. And so because we are begotten again, not only do we have a living confidence, we have this expectation because of a relationship now to God the Father. We are his sons. And we have an inheritance waiting for us. It is written in stone by the working of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and by a God who does not change, who established that inheritance for you far below, before you ever got saved. He, he established it far before the world began. He determined that whoever trusted in Christ would receive this inheritance. That's how sure it is. And so Paul has developed this whole concept in, in Ephesians 1, but he also has talked about it in Romans 8. Turn with me very quickly to Romans 8 as well. We're going to put these passages together so that I can get into 1 Peter 1.4 with some depth. And now you have the background verses with me. And I invite you to, because there's still a part we haven't 
developed that I skipped in Ephesians 1, but you, hopefully you picked up while we were reading it. It'll come out here in Romans 8. Pick up with me uh, in verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you see that? So the children of God, we have adoption in Ephesians 1. We have the begotten again in 1 Peter 1. So children of God, verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And you see the concept of glorification there. But we also see another element that Peter's going to pick up, and that is there is a, a secondary condition here of what real saving faith is. Saving faith is enduring faith. And you've heard me teach this now for over 20 years in this church, that saving faith is enduring faith. That if your faith does not endure, it never saved you. We, say by, we are saved by grace through faith, sola fide, uh, which is grace alone, or faith alone. And so we trust in faith. But the measure of faith is our endurance. That true, genuine faith that is the, the highest level of faith that John calls us to. Remember, John, you had believe and you had really believe. Really, really believe. That high faith that gives us the confident hope is an enduring faith. And Peter's going to bring that out a lot because suffering is a part of what he has to share in his book. And here Paul has, more concisely than Peter this time, has put these concepts together. You are children of God. You are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. If... Indeed, we suffer with that, that we might be glorified together. What did Christ suffer? He suffered the cross for us. Or we, were, we want the inheritance with him, but we don't want to join him in the suffering end. And Paul makes that very clear that that is, should be understood. And so we come to these passages that talk about our inheritance, talk about what is the basis of it, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is the requirement to be, to be a recipient of it, and that is by faith that we receive it and we stand in that faith, that we endure in that faith, that it is, becomes the definition of who we are, and that there is full confidence in it at that point. We have one more passage that we're going to get to, but I, I want to wait. <clears throat> I want to go back to First Peter first. In 1 Peter, we are begotten again to an inheritance. And Peter's going to describe it in three ways. Well, really in four, but we're going to look at three of them. Uh, we are incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so these are the four things. We're going to look at three. Uh, we're going to really combine two of them into one. Uh, the, the idea of does not fade away and incorruptible, we're going to kind of bring together as a single concept. Um, there is a little bit of distinguishment there uh, in the Greek uh, between them, but we're going to bring it uh, into one point. And so we have an inheritance, incorruptible. That is, it does not dissolve. It, it, it's, it won't be destroyed. Now, um, I could write in my will that my son inherits everything at my death. 
And then I could do something horrible to him. And that is, and we have little bumper stickers. I think it's really funny to do this. And it says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. Have you seen those bumper stickers? Usually on big RVs that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm spending my children's inheritance. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, that's not very nice. <clears throat> and maybe that's why every generation of America is in deeper and deeper debt. Because we do not help the next generation establish themselves. Um, every generation should, if anything, from their parents have a home uh, by the time their parents die. And, and maybe we need to skip that. But anyway, I could squander what really my son should inherit. I could easily squander that. And we see that concept, even, even in Hezekiah, he squandered his children's inheritance, really. When he says, oh, that's good, you're not going to punish me, you're going to punish my children or grandchildren. That's okay with me. And is that okay with us, that we squander that? But we have a, an inheritance from God that can't be squandered. It can't be corrupted. It can't be wasted. It can't be destroyed before we can get our hands on it. It is indestructible. It is incorruptible. It is not going to be poisoned. It's not going to be uh, uh, obliterated by the one who now holds it for us. We are the legal recipients because we have trusted in Jesus Christ, and the Father holds that inheritance for us, ready to grant it to us, and he will not squander it. He will not let it slip through his fingers. It cannot be taken away from him. And this is part of what it, we talk about, the, the, that what is kept in my father's hand, no one can take it from him. And we saw in that passage about the, the, in Ephesians 1 about the fact that he has authority over principality, all these powers, and, and that he has, his power extends beyond it. There is no one greater than him, so therefore there is no one who can take your inheritance away. They'd have to take it away from God himself. He cannot be fooled and tricked. Someone could trick me out of my son's inheritance. That can happen. I can be foolish enough to do that. I can be foolish enough to expend it all on myself and decadent living. Uh, and like the son who squandered his inheritance after he received it. And certainly my son could squander the inheritance. And he could be penniless uh, hours after he received an inheritance. But our inheritance is incorruptible. It does not fade away. It cannot be taken away, cannot rot, cannot be destroyed, and it does not fade away. And, and there is a subtle distinction there between those two words, but the idea here, the concept is, is that your confident hope of this inheritance is not misplaced at all. You're not really placing, a, I hope it's there when, I, when it becomes mine. I hope there's something left of it. And nowhere is this more true than in around the turn of the century, the previous century, not this century. Uh, we talk about the turn of the century. In, my, in our vocabulary, that usually means the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s. Uh, I don't know if the, anyone ever uses that about the turn of, we always talk about the millennia. But, and uh, we look back in the 1800s, and, and especially in England, where many, many, um, inheritances that were nothing. They were just debt. That's all the children really inherited. They had these beautiful properties 
uh, with, with hundreds, thousands of years of history, certainly hundreds of years of history behind them. It's passed down from generation to generation, generation to generation, generation, and then uh, they were passed down with nothing but debt. It was corrupted. The inheritance was corrupted. It only takes one generation to do that. But because we are direct descendants, we are begotten again of the Father. We are direct descendants of God now. We are direct heirs of God. There's no intermediate person, including Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul seeks to communicate. Romans, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It's not that God is going to pass it to Jesus and Jesus is going to pass it to you. No. The power of your inheritance is established in Jesus Christ, but you're getting an inheritance with him. That means you are in a, a first position of inheritance. You are a joint heir. And so there's no one between God the Father and you that's going to squander or corrupt your inheritance. It's going to ruin it for you. There are no attorneys in that process that are going to ruin it. No one is going to corrupt it, destroy it. That's our inheritance that we have waiting for us. That's how sure it is. That's how confident we should have of it. But that's not enough for God. Just to have you in the direct first position of receiving the inheritance as his begotten again ones uh, isn't enough for him. And because he knows you. He knows what men are made of. That, that should be enough. It should be enough to give us a confident hope to live out the rest of our lives uh, enduring any suffering for that inheritance for a loving father and his mercy, grace has granted us this. That should be enough. But it isn't, and God knows it isn't because he knows you. He knows what men are like. We need more than that. We shouldn't, but we do. And I'm willing to acknowledge that. I hope you are too. Uh, that we are creatures of anxiety. We are creatures of distrust. Because we've been let down by other people. And we often then project that distrust onto God. And I know the people who have been let down by their earthly parents, they say, or especially their father, have a hard time, and they project a, concept, a negative concept of fatherhood upon God the Father, and that's error. That's foolishness. To think that God the Father is comparable to your human father. Whether how good or how evil they were is irrelevant. Why would you ever compare him to any man? And yet we do. And God knows that. And so he says, I'm going to go beyond that. You're in first position of inheritance under God the Father. Your inheritance is incorruptible and cannot fade away. That's the eternality of it. Cannot be taken, cannot be interfered with, cannot be brought into judicial question at any point because God is the author. It is his predestination that you receive it. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the, is the authority by which it is made yours, and so none of that can be taken away. That should be enough, but it's not. And God knows that even with that knowledge, you would still have doubts. You would still have anxiety about your future. You would still, when, when brought to decision, either deny Christ or die, 
we would still go, oh, well, God said I have this inheritance waiting for me, but, 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 I don't know. And then we deny Christ. God knows the propensity of man, the weakness of man to do that. And so, even though he has declared this to be true, that we are adopted, that we are in, in, the, in the Eastern mentality, once you're adopted, you can't be unadopted, which is a wonderful thing. And, and dis, you can't be disinherited if you're adopted. If you're born, you can be disinherited, but not if you're adopted. So we're bringing adoption as sons. This is our destiny. Um, we have this uh, begotten againness. We are sons of God. But, but God knows that that's not really enough for you. He knows your weakness. And his mercy is abundant. So he's going to help you out a little bit more. He has a phrase here that it is reserved in heaven for you. How is it reserved? How is it reserved? We've already looked at that, and that is it is reserved through the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit is the seal upon us. He seals us, and, he, and there it says he is the guarantee of your inheritance. So the guarantee of your inheritance, even though the declaration of God should be enough, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should be enough, God says, I'll go one step further, and I'll give you a seal guaranteeing your inheritance. And that seal guarantee is the Holy Spirit. And he says, listen, you're going to see Christ one day. We're going to be there. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be in the abode of God. We're going to be in the presence of his glory. That's what awaits us. We're going to be studying that here very shortly. We're getting to that passage. Uh, I promise we've got one more verse to get to. Passage we're going to get to. We're going to get there. Uh, but I want you to see that uh, while it was decreed by God, the eternity past, whoever accepted Christ gets this inheritance. It is accomplished by the power of the resurrection that no one can undo because uh, he conquered sin and death for all men. But just to help you have a little more confidence in it, we're going to seal you with a guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit within us, the Spirit with us, the Spirit uh, abiding here, uh, taking lodging here, if you will, is our guarantee. It is that which, which affirms to us over and over again, day in and day out, I am a child of the king. I have an inheritance waiting for me. I can endure whatever this world comes, throws at me because I have something better waiting for me. This is the Holy Spirit. And why do you think it is so critically important that you as a Christian not grieve the Holy Spirit, not resist the Holy Spirit, not quench the Holy Spirit, because he's your guarantor. He is the one that says, I'm backing this up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the work in you so that you have every confidence that you have heaven in your possession as your inheritance. It is being held by the Father, paid for by the Son, guaranteed by the Spirit in your life. And this is why we should do nothing to inhibit the work of the Spirit. Because as he ministers, what does he do? What does Jesus call him? Your comforter. What's he comforting you with? The knowledge that you have a guaranteed inheritance in the presence of God. 
Why would you resist him? Yes, sometimes the exercise of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin and make us feel bad. Don't resist that. How do you not resist that? How do you, how do you not resist uh, the Holy Spirit make you feel bad about your sin? Confess it. Repent of it. That's responding properly to the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction. When the Holy Spirit works through God's Word, and you're reading God's Word, and says, oh boy, I'm not doing that, I should be doing that, and the Holy Spirit enlightens you to God's Word and convicts you at the same time, the response should be obedience. Don't resist Him, don't quench Him. How do you quench the Holy Spirit? Keep away from God's Word and God's people. It's pretty simple. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Remember, ladies, from your... Armor of God, study, the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's sword. You want to quench him? Just withdraw the fuel. Here's the fuel for the fire of God's work in your life. It is his word and his people. Don't quench him. Don't resist him. Don't grieve him by your disobedience. And so we respond, we want him active in our life. Not so that just so that I can say I have this list of spiritual gifts. Um, and those that chase after those things and pursue those things uh, with such fervor are, are selfish. And that's the opposite of spirit-filledness. Spirit-filledness is selfless. And so if I have any spiritual gifts, I recognize they're not for me or for me to go around and brag about and or, or, you know, put my thumbs in my lapels and go, woohoo, look at me. Uh, any, any gift of the Holy Spirit is for the benefit of the body of Christ and not for me. It's for you, not for me. And the fruit of the Spirit is not for my own enjoyment. It is for the benefit of the body of Christ. Respond to the Holy Spirit because he's your guarantee of your inheritance. When you grieve him, when you resist him, when you quench him, uh, when you don't walk in the Spirit, you walk in the flesh, you trust your own intellect, you trust lawyers and doctors and politicians instead of God's word and scientists. I got to put scientists at the top of the list this week. Um, you, you, you trust all of them instead of God's word. How foolish you are. They can't guarantee you anything. Do they? They tell you things and then it doesn't happen. They tell you things that won't happen and they do happen. Because they can't guarantee anything. But the Spirit is your guarantee of your inheritance. And if you don't know the Spirit's moving in your life, then you don't have a guarantee of the inheritance, then you should have a lot of anxiety. That's why you should be embracing the Holy Spirit, finding out what do I need to do that he might have more action in my life, more of an impact there, that he might have this fillness in me of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. That is a faithful, ongoing thing. It's not all about, the, and I, I see Pentecostal, charismatic groups, and it's up and down and up and down. They've got to have these pinnacle events and another pinnacle event. And it's not. It's a walk. Okay? It's a walk. 
daily walking close to thee. Grant it, Savior, is my plea. A daily walk. Not these little bursts of spirituality in the midst of bursts of doubt and sin. No. It's a daily reality for you to walk in a manner that pleases God. And you should want that because the Spirit is your guarantee. It is reserved in heaven for you, is how Peter says it. Uh, Paul in Ephesians says that the guarantee of our salvation is the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is the, his, his presence there is the seal of God upon you. And so we have this reserved for us. It is, it is there, it is established for us, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is the evidence you need to further remove all doubt in your life. That you are a child of God with a sure inheritance waiting for you in heaven. And so I don't do anything. Well, I shouldn't say I don't. I don't want to do anything to inhibit his work. All right? And so when the Bible says, be filled with the, you know, do not be drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He's not telling you to get drunk with the Spirit. He's telling you, don't let drunkenness inhibit the spiritual work that should be happening in your life. What is the evidence of the Spirit's work? Self-control. What is the evidence of wine's work? The lack thereof, right? You're losing self-control of not only your body, but your thoughts and your spirit itself. And so when we look at these things that, the, that Satan wants to entice us into, it is not that we're, uh, it's, a, it's that I recognize that the more I participate in the things of this world, the more I find comfort there, the more I'm inhibiting being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is my guarantee. Why would I want to jeopardize that ever? He is my guarantee. And so, as we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, and then we recognize, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I fail, but when I fail, the Holy Spirit convicts me, and I hope, Lord willing, confess and repent, and I want to be more like Jesus Christ this week than last week, because the Spirit is active agent in my life, because He is the guarantee. This is going to be very important to developing one of the themes of Peter, because we're going to talk about suffering. And if you're going to suffer for Christ effectually, that is that you are going to be successful at suffering. <laughs> I know that's not on your radar, but it needs to be. Please put this on your radar. Am I a successful sufferer? All right, now in my family we have a favorite line from uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, do we suffer? Yeah, oh yes, we suffer, we suffer. But do we complain? No, we don't complain, we just suffer. Uh, and, and of course, the person who spoke that was complaining about suffering uh, in the movie. But, uh, uh, or in the story of the of Filler on the Roof. And so, we're going to talk in Peter about being successful sufferers. Well, you can't suffer successfully if you're not walking in the Spirit. You will always fail. You'll always not just complain, you will buckle. You will surrender your faith in the face of suffering. You will crumble. 
And that's why the time to firmly establish your relationship with the Holy Spirit is right now, because in the future, suffering to come, and it will come, the Bible's guaranteed it, uh, that we are prepared. That is not the time to seek the Holy Spirit. It is seek Him now while He can be found, while it is available to you, you can be in God's Word, and then when the suffering comes, you're prepared. And this is what the New Testament authors were writing their books to their people for, including John, including Peter, and James, and Paul, all these guys, Jude, all these people were writing these books to their people saying, get ready, we know it's going to get bad, but we want you to endure the book of Hebrews. Galatians. Now, Galatians was kind of after the fact. These people have come into your midst and they're causing this suffering by having you question your salvation. And he says, oh, foolish Galatians, you should have already been prepared for this because I taught you better. Establish yourself in the teaching of God's word so that when suffering comes, you can succeed in suffering. But we think that success in suffering is avoiding it. But that's not true. The avoidance of suffering is what will always happen to those who deny Jesus Christ. Please understand that. To avoid suffering, even on a very base level, well, if I look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, will the world hate me? No, they won't. You've just compromised Jesus Christ to avoid suffering. Put it in those terms. I have compromised Jesus Christ for, so that I don't have other people say, we don't like you. We don't want to be friends with you. We don't want to hang out with you. You don't like to do the things we want to do. Blah, 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 blah. And you're willing to compromise Jesus Christ just to get that level and, and that somehow you think that if someone comes up to you and says, deny Jesus Christ or die, you're going to stand for Christ then when you won't stand for him here because you don't want to suffer having no friends your age at work or at school or in the neighborhood. No, we must be prepared for suffering, and we do that at the level we are at today by developing our relationship with with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee, so that we can successfully suffer. And this is what the authors wanted. Peter wants them Here, I want you to know this so that as suffering comes, you understand you don't need to waver. You don't need to compromise yourself. You don't need to buckle under that kind of pressure because you have a guarantor in your life, and his name is Holy Spirit. You have a guaranteed inheritance. It is kept for you. It is being kept for you by the determination of God in eternity past, by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is being kept for you. Now there's one more phrase I've skipped because I want to talk about it last. And I don't usually do things out of order in this, these kinds of passages, but I wanted to talk about it being undefiled. And, this, and really, I, I'm going to talk about all of them, but I want to talk about the undefiledness. Undefiledness basically means that it is a holy inheritance. It is a pure inheritance. And thus extraordinarily precious. 
anything that you inherit of this world is defiled of itself because this is a sinful world. The inheritance that we're expecting is a sinless one. It is filled with perfection. And that should also motivate us to look around at this world and says, well, not only does that get broken and can it be corrupted and can it fade away, but it is fundamentally defiled. It is fundamentally flawed. And so no matter how well I try, I have not ever built a perfect building. I tried. The first building we had that I was participated in was Charity Baptist Church in Rio Rancho. And I remember one of the contractors who was really getting, I, I, I'm sure I was frustrating him to no end. And he sat me down one evening at our dinner table with my family and he said, Pastor Kirk, I just want to share with you, there's only one perfect house you're ever going to live in and it's not on this earth. There's only one perfect building you're ever going to worship in and it's not on this earth. So let's not think that this one's going to be perfect. And what was he telling me? He's like, we can't make this building perfect because it's fundamentally flawed because it's here. If your hope is for anything here, it is fundamentally defiled. It is flawed. I have an inheritance that is undefiled, is unflawed. It is perfect that's waiting for me. It's being kept for me. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And with this I'll close. Revelation 21, let's begin in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and also there was no more sea. The oceans themselves are evidence of the flaw and the defiledness of this world. They're the result of the flood. The new heaven, new earth, is no more sea. Then I saw, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Why? Because they are fundamentally flawed. They are defiled. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Wow. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things that I will be his God and he shall be my son. Do you see the connection that are identical to what we saw in the epistles, in the letters to the churches in Rome and, and, uh, and to Ephesus and, and for Peter to those in the dispersion and, and even Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we have this connection again. You have an inheritance. It will be to those who are his children, his sons. We are the ones. But notice also we have an inheritance. We inherit everything that he is providing and, and some think, 
the, the translators sometimes, some of your translators might say, and shall inherit these things. Well, these things is the new heaven and the new earth, which is all things at that point because the rest has been just destroyed. So whether it's these things or all things, it's essentially the same. We are the inheritors of this undefiled world, of an undefiled new heaven, new earth, and a new Jerusalem. That's who it is because we are the sons of God. But do not dismiss the first part of that last verse, and it says, he who overcomes. What are you overcoming? Well, not an extra hour of sleep. You're not overcoming a soft bed. What are you overcoming to inherit such a wondrous, undefiled world is the sufferings of this world. He who overcomes. And we don't overcome by our own strength and power, but by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, the guarantor in our lives. We must overcome. Because this is the evidence of genuine faith. Is that it endures sufferings. But please value your inheritance. It is undefiled. Perfect, flawless inheritance waiting for you which means we know we don't deserve it because how can it be flawless when I get there? Because you're going to be transformed. All things are made new, including you. That has already begun. If you accept Jesus Christ, you've already begun that process, and it is a process, and there will come a time when we are glorified in His sight. We will have our new bodies. We will put off this tent and put on that which is permanent. We will put away the old man and enjoy the fullness of the new man that we enjoy a little bit now, like looking in a mirror darkly, but then we'll see him face to face, the Bible says. It'll be a flawless inheritance, undefiled. This is what waits for us. Why wouldn't you endure suffering for that? Because this suffering is only for a little while. It really is. They can scorn you, spit at you, cause you pain, an injury, but only for a little while. The inheritance is eternal and flawless, perfect. And you have a guarantor in you today that should make you so sure of it that there is no doubt in your mind. You will, you will go through the valley of the shadow of death and you will fear no evil because his rod and his staff comfort you. You can declare that, and you can live that. You can be the overcomer. In fact, Paul says you're more than overcomers through him who loved us and gave his son for us. The Father has made you his son and decreed for you an inheritance from eternity past. He has provided a means for you to be made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ and to have new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has granted you a guarantee and he simply asks you, overcome. Suffer. Endure. For that which is perfect will come one day.
And he wants it to be yours so bad. I pray that you want it to be yours as badly. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the inheritance that awaits us, incorruptible, undefiled, fading not away, reserved for us in heaven. Lord, we have a little ways to walk, just a little ways to walk till we're there. We know these are the end days. We see the evidence. We have seen the, the prophecies coming true again and again. We see evil being called good and good called evil. We have seen the falling away of the saints. We are expectantly the, anticipating the revelation of the evil one, of the, of the uh, man of sin. We see the world moving steadily, quickly, all that you've declared. And so Lord, we pray that you might grant us a double portion of your mercy, that it might abound in us, that we might stand fast. There has been much wavering around us. There's been many who have buckled and are contemplating it now. Lord, let it not be numbered among us. We thank you for your spirit. Where we have quenched him, where we have resisted him, where we have grieved him, forgive us. Help us to walk, be filled with him, that we might serve your people, serve your kingdom, and have a living hope of an inheritance beyond our capacity to understand or appreciate. But Lord, you do. Your spirit does. May you have liberty to work in us till that day when we will see you face to face. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.